The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. So we're in the book of Colossians. Started this series a few weeks ago. And we're finally, finally at the part where I think people have been getting a little, getting a little itchy. They're like, all right, I've been part of Life Journey for I don't know how long, and every time I'm here, every time I'm here, I'm not really hearing a whole lot of what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. Because unfortunately, that's the human tendency, isn't it? There's that idea of, of I've got to be doing something. And unfortunately, that seems to be the motif around which church is modeled way too much, not just in our community, but I, th- I think globally. It's in part because of the pastors, it's in part because of the people. See, pastors have various philosophies. And I'll just kind of line them out for you, and I'm going to tell you from the get-go, I didn't manuscript my message this week, and so the rabbit trolls are going to be awesome. So if you need to help me hunt that rabbit down and shoot it and get back on track, feel free to do so. Uh, and when it gets about 1 o'clock, let me know, and we'll, we'll call it a morning. You think I'm joking. See, as a pastor, as a pastor, I've tried to figure out, okay, well, what is my role? What is it that God is calling me to do in the context of shepherding his people? And some pastors, they look at their people, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list these positions out, and you're going to start nodding your head because many of you have experience with all of these. Some pastors, it seems that they sit back and they think about their people, and they try to target a behavior that they would like to see different. The big one's tithing, right? Oh, budget's down. Need to get them to tithe. Therefore, I'm going to craft a message that tells them that if they're not putting money in the plate, well, they're robbing from God. We'll go into Malachi. We'll, we'll talk about the Old Testament Levitical system and you know implement that now. It doesn't work exegetically, but they try that. Or uh, Sunday night attendance. We don't have a Sunday night service, but if we did, it would be a lot smaller than our Sunday morning service. And therefore, I would preach a message about forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I quote in the King James. It's weird, I know. It's just what I grew up with. But they seem to target the behaviors that they want to modify and then go wherever in Scripture they can to create a message out of thin air that they can then browbeat the people with until that behavior is changed. Has anyone ever experienced this? All right, that's not fun. It's not fun. And so then the question for the pastor begins to be, okay, well, what do I want to talk about this week? What do I want to change this week? What do I want the people that are coming here to be nourished and fed, how guilty do I want them feeling so that they can make a change so that then they can then please God and then God's happy with them and and then I'm happy with them because they're finally doing what it is that I think they ought to be doing. So some pastors do that. Other pastors, with a little bit more integrity, will approach the text, and the question on the back of their mind will be, okay, well, what behavior issue is this text presenting for my people? And so they'll actually read the text and then figure out, okay, well, this text is talking about uh, the Good Samaritan. Therefore, the message for my people is, well, they need to love better. They need to be more sacrificial. They need to go out beyond their own neighborhood. And, and you know, the, so they'll create action items. And so the message that they present is, you are failing in this area, but it's okay, because even though God's mad at you for failing, I've got a a list of action items that you can take this week, and then you make God happy and everybody wins. But once again, the focus is on, well, what do the people need to do? There's got to be some do's in there. And then you have other pastors who look at the text, and if there's no do in the text, then they don't preach a do. 
If there's a done in the text or a statement of fact, then they preach that. And, and the dynamic there, I'll just I'll bore you a little bit, it's basically the, the, the difference between imperatives and indicatives. An indicative is just simply a statement of fact. It's a true thing. It's a done deal. An imperative is a command. And so whether the pastor creates the commands and then finds a message or finds a text to support it or pulls the commands out, you've got some that absolutely refuse to acknowledge that they're commands. And so they totally shy away from that. And then their messages are usually, let's tell you a whole lot of stuff, but there's no, there's no practical application. There's no, here's how this matters. There's no, here's how this can play out in your life. And so at Life Journey for the past, I don't know how long, There's been a whole lot of indicatives. There's been a whole lot of this is what has happened. We walked through the book of Mark. It took us 18 months. And there's a whole lot of factual statements. But but not surprisingly, there's not a whole lot of commands for the church because, surprise, the church did not exist prior to Pentecost. We could debate that, but you know the point that I'm getting at. And so now we're in Colossians. And we've been talking about what Paul has said, which is this has been done, this has been done, this has been done. A whole lot of indicatives. And now finally we're in chapter 3 where many of us can say, all right, good, finally, I can be told what to do. Because there's just that little mechanism in the back of our mind that thinks that the the Christian life is all about doing, right? And see, the problem with that is I think that the mentality that we take into the text is that we want to shortcut the process of being molded into the image of Christ, which is a good desire to have, right? Right? I mean, if you find me a Christ follower who says that the last thing that he ever wants to do is actually follow Christ, and that's, that's weird. But when you talk to a regenerate, born-again believer, generally there is an inclination in the back of their mind to, to do better. They, they want to be more Christ-like. They acknowledge, okay, I'm new in here, but daggone it, I'm tired of, of, of falling into this sin or this sin. And, and so they want to see that changed life but the problem is, I think that by jumping straight into the indicative or into the imperatives, by jumping straight into these action items, that they're trying to shortcut the system. Now, what is the problem with shortcuts? How how often do they work? All right, let me rephrase the question. How many of you men have ever taken a shortcut that wound up being longer than what you thought it was going to take? Let's be honest. All right, the rest of you are lying. We'll get to you later in chapter 3 or something. But we try to take a shortcut. I mean, we can jump straight to the imperatives. We really can. For example, if you're here this morning and you want to know what it is that you're supposed to do, if you want to know what it is that you're supposed to do this week that's going to make God completely thrilled with your behavior, that's going to make the life of Christ pop out, Well, this is what Paul says, and we're not going to cover these today, but they're coming up. We're going to preach through these in the weeks to come. But just think about this. All right. So Paul says, uh, okay, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, well, let's start there. For the rest of this week, don't ever want something that you can't have. All right. We can do that. Good to go, right? Um, Let's see. Okay, also put off these, anger. So we can't be mad at anybody this week, which I would have thought out last week. don't even have time for that. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Um, don't lie to each other. Um, okay, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, uh, forgiving everybody. Put on love. 
All right, I can continue down the list, but I would guarantee you as we do that, there's going to be a greater and greater increase in realization that if this is what God expects out of me this week, I'm, I'm toast. Because we look at these things, and unfortunately we have the natural expectation that because now we're born again, we have the power in and of ourselves to do this. And so as we go down the list and we ask ourselves, okay, well, how, how well am I loving people? How well am I not being angry with people? How well am I guarding the things that are coming out of my mouth? I mean, as I was going through the list, how many of you can look back on this past week and realize, hey, I'm doing all of that, I'm there? Anybody? Because if, if, if that's you, then you can go ahead and just leave this morning because the rest of the message doesn't apply to you. <laughs> there you go. And so we try to shortcut the system. We jump to these imperatives. We jump to these action items, which are in Scripture. I mean, I just read them. They're there. But the problem is, we think that if we just jump straight to that, for whatever motivation we have, and the motivations vary. Some of us crave these things because we think it's what we need to do to make God happy with us. Because unfortunately, we've grown up in a church that has taught us that if we're anything less than perfect, then the wrath of God is just, oh, he's just waiting to unleash fury on us. Which I thought was taken care of at the cross, right? Or we've grown up thinking, okay, well, well, your salvation was a gift. It was appropriated by faith. But now you've got to work this thing out. And every command you find in Scripture is totally up to you to get done. Good luck. And we fail at that because newsflash, apart from the grace of God, it doesn't happen. And so maybe the motivation is just simply... I just want my life to look like Christ. And that's a good motivation. But if you approach these imperatives with the mindset that if I just try hard enough, I can make it happen, you're going to once again continue failing. And so then the question is, well, why are the imperatives there? Why are these commands there? Well, a couple of reasons that I can think of that I believe are biblical. One of them is this. It's definitely not to earn God's favor. I told Doug Gentry this morning I was going to go off a little bit on the Noah movie. Here we go. How many of you have seen it? A couple of you? All right. Let me just let me start with this. I don't understand. I don't understand the big fuss about people saying, well, it's not a biblical movie. All right, you had Noah. You had his family. You had his boat. And there was a flood. Do you need anything else? If you've not seen the movie, I'm being greatly facetious. I'm not going to pick it apart this morning. But there was a fascinating part in this movie, where these, just, if you've not seen the movie yet, I'm not making this up. There's a group of fallen angels, also known as demons, that are helping Noah build this boat. <laughs> I don't even have time for these rabbit trails. Helping Noah build this boat, and towards the end of the movie, and I'm, I'm going to try not to spoil anything, but there's this, there's this massive battle going on. And these rock-encrusted fallen angels that are known as watchers are defending Noah and his family, which isn't the biblical family, because I don't even have time for that. Noah, and I'm a little irritated at this movie, Noah and his family are being protected while they get on the boat by these fallen angels who are trying to do everything in their power to be forgiven. Because they were cast out of heaven because they intervened at the fall of mankind because they wanted to protect humanity. All right, that's really biblical there. And unfortunately, their ploy worked. They realized if I sacrifice myself 
protecting God's plan here, then their angelic being can depart the, the, the worst special effects ever and go back to heaven. And I'm like, come on. It's, it's bad enough when you have a humanity that's thinking they can work their way. To, you're going to let it work for demons? But I say all of that to say that even in this absolutely bizarre movie, you've got this mindset that if they just do good enough, then God will once again accept them. And that's, I mean, that's the, that's the mindset of humanity, right? Not every single individual. You've got some that try to deny the existence of God. But for the most part, we seem to think that if we just do good enough, then God's happy with us. That mindset seems to have stuck with us even post-conversion when we think that if I just do what God says, then that's going to make things better between me and God. But, but as we've said for years now, if you have Christ, you have everything. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And so these imperatives in Scripture, these commands, these, these guidelines are not given so that we can make things better between us and God. If He looks at us and sees the righteousness of His own Son, which has been given to us in this new creation, how could we possibly improve on that? Well, we can't. And so the imperatives aren't there so that we can improve things between us and God. The imperatives aren't there so that if we do them well enough, God will actually justify us. That's salvation by works. People like to think that's true. Scripture says otherwise. And I, for one, am glad that it's not by works. And so then why are they there? Well, some could argue, well, they were only there for the initial context. These imperatives were given to the Christians in Colossae. Therefore, they don't apply to the church. And in some cases, I think that that's valid. I think that there were some church issues going on that was addressed in Scripture that are no longer contextually relevant to Life Journey Church. They were individual-specific occurrences. But then I think that there are also some other guidelines that Paul gives in Ephesians and Colossians, uh, a lot of his letters that I think are universally applicable to all of God's people. And so if they're there and they're there for us and they're not designed to make things better between us and God or to allow us to merit our salvation, then why are they there? Well, I would submit to you that number one, maybe not number one in importance, but the first reason I believe they're there is for our joy. How many of you have ever placed a rule on your children for the sole purpose of irritating them? How, how many of you put guidelines on the behavior of your kids because you want what's, what's worst for them? Anybody? I mean, if you, if you say yes to that, that makes you a what? Uh, kind of a jerk, right? I mean, I don't want to be too harsh in my language because I'm trying to figure out whether or not I've done this with Uriah. Yeah, don't ask my kids. They're not here this morning for a reason. <laughs> Uh, they're in, well, one's in Lynchburg, one's in Indiana. I didn't want that to be taken the wrong way. When my kids cross the road, they know that the rule that I've given them is to hold Dad's hand. Why? It's to protect them, right? Is it to protect them from my wrath? No, it's to protect them from a car. It's to keep them safe. Every rule that I can think of that I've ever given my children has been for their good. It's been for their joy. And so in Scripture, as we see where the church is starting to not live in the reality of who they are, we see these things pop up that God has spoken through His Holy Spirit that if followed, make things so much 
better for us. Not relationally between us and God, but practically here on earth. Quick example. Husbands, love your wives. All right, if a husband loves his wife the way that Christ loves the bride, does that make a marriage better or worse? It makes it better, right? And so one of the reasons that there are these imperatives that we all seem to want to run to is because if followed, which we can't do in our own strength, we'll get to that in a second, makes life better for us. I think that a lot of these things have been given to us to show us what the ideal Christian life could be. I think that they're also for God's glory. I think they're for His glory. Here's what I mean by that. I've got to unpack it. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to just totally burn up all my time. God created the church for His glory. And if you go back in Ezekiel 36, if you go to Jeremiah 31, as you look at the promises of the new covenant laid out, as you look at God's promise of cutting out that heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh, God says, it's not for your sake that I'm going to do this, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned. And so as God, through the power of his word, begins to chip away at the idols in our heart, and I I use that term figuratively, he's doing that so that eventually, on his timing, we become transformed into greater and greater degrees of the image of his son. So let me clarify that for a second. I'm not speaking internally I'm speaking purely externally. Internally, it can't be any better than what it is. Internally, we are perfect. Scripture says that we are holy, that we are saints, that we are separated, that we were taken out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. But this transformation that starts at the inside works its way out, and it does that so that the unbelieving world can step back and say, man, there's there's something different about these people. There's something about the way that these people respond to life that's different. The way they respond to chaos, to stress, to, uh, to disaster. It's just, their life is different. And so I'm not saying that we should go through Scripture and look at the imperatives and say, well, I want to be different, therefore I'm going to do this, because that's not how it works. But I do think that they're in part there so that our behavior can be molded by the Holy Spirit to bring God glory. Here's another way that it brings God glory. And this is kind of a philosophical uh, concept that I've been working my way through and it's never good when I'm thinking out loud and bringing you with me because my mind can be a scary place but one of the questions that I've always mulled over is why does God still allow us to sin and so one of the quick answers well God wants us to have free will okay what do we have free will in heaven well yes are we going to sin there no okay then what makes the difference uh And so the reason that we're not going to sin in heaven, I think, is because when we fully behold the glory of God and the beauty of His Son, there is no way in the world we could ever desire anything other than worship. Which means, if that's true, which I think it is, which means that on this side of eternity, if it's also true that the extent to which we sin is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Correlational? Let's not think big here. If we only sin because we have taken our eyes off of Christ, then why doesn't God keep our eyes on Christ a little bit more? Because he could do that, right? Show of hands, if God wanted to make us sinless right now, could he do it? Yes. And so if he can do it, but he chose not to, then that means that his greatest desire in this occasion is to allow us to still stupidly stumble. So why? Why would God allow us 
to do the things that break our hearts because they remind us of how far from God we can be. You ever been there? You ever find yourself, I'll never do that again. I'll never speak that way again. I'll never feel that way again. I'll never spin that way again. I'll never, I'll never do this or that. I'm not going to name these things because as long as I leave them unnamed, then, then you're going to think of what it is that you struggle with. And we do these things and we're like, all right, God, I'll never do it again. I promise. And then like two seconds later, you're like, ah, why? Why does God let us do that? And I think in part, God lets his people stumble so that when we fall flat on our face and look up and realize that God's waiting there with his arms wide open, it causes us to worship God in a way that we couldn't if we hadn't. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Paul answers a hypothetical question that he's anticipating. Like, okay, so should we sin more so that grace can abound even more? And Paul says, in language stronger than what I can say this morning, heck no. That's not the way it works. But at the same time, God allows us to stumble, and I believe he does so, so that we can worship him even more for his unconditional love and forgiveness, despite our actions, not because of them. Now, do I wish that God would say right now, okay, Richard, cool experiment, and now you will walk in perfect obedience? Yeah, I kind of long for that. But at the same time, I know that as long as God is there unconditionally forgiving me, no strings attached because I'm his son, then that causes me to worship God. And so I think sometimes the imperatives are there to show us how far from God we, we still can be in our flesh, in our actions. And so there's multiple reasons why there could be imperatives. The thing is, we try to shortcut the process. We try to jump straight to the imperatives and say, well, if I can just line these things out, if I can create this to-do list, then as long as I do this, then I'm good. What's the problem with that? How many of us can do that? I can't. Theoretically, I can Scripture says there's no temptation that God's ever presented before someone. Well, let me rephrase it. There's no temptation given to man by which God has not created an escape for. That's kind of a Boyce paraphrase. We'll call it the, the Boyce standard version. Which means, more thinking out loud, that if there's no such thing as a temptation that I can't successfully avoid, then theoretically, as long as I successfully avoid that, then I can be perfect. And so theoretically, we could have that life, but in reality, it doesn't happen. Why? Because of our minds. They're not yet perfect. And as long as they're not perfect, then there's going to be this continual process of renewal by which we realize who we are in Christ, what has been done for us, and that propels the behavior. So this is what I mean. Grace and grace alone is what fuels our worship. It's what fuels our lifestyle. It's what fuels our supposed obedience to Scripture. And so let's dive into Colossians. I know that's a lengthy introduction. We're going to dive into Colossians chapter 3. Because as I said, I mean, there's a lot of action items. I didn't even get into chapter 4. I mean, there are some serious action items in here. But before we get there, Before we get there, I think that we need to cover the first four verses of chapter 3, which really serve as the hinge for this book. Paul has spent two chapters, granted the chapter divisions weren't in the original writings, but Paul has so far 
been writing to tell the church, if you have Christ, you have everything. He's trying to combat these false teachers that have come in and said, well, Jesus is good and all, but if you really want to get somewhere, if you want to go to the next level up, then you need to abstain from certain foods and beverages. You need to worship angels the way that we do, and we get extra knowledge from these angels. You need to, uh, to, to separate yourselves. You need to do this and this and this, and they were teaching that all of these actions improved upon what Christ had done for them. And Paul wrapped up chapter, or chapter 2 ends with Paul saying, uh, all of these things, these regulations that you have needlessly submitted yourself to, well, number one, they're man-made. Number two, they're a waste of time. And number three, they're of no value whatsoever to stop the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul says, you can play that game all you want. You're going to lose. There's nothing to win by behavior modification and empty religiosity other than a life of joyless misery because we will never of our own strength perform the way that we perceive God desires of us and we're not going to get there by creating some extra rules for us to follow didn't work too well for the Pharisees it's not going to work too well for us now and so the first step then the first step as Paul begins to shift gears and he begins to spell these things out is that we need to realize that it all begins up here It doesn't start here. It starts here. And so in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, in other words, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, this is no longer a general widespread applicable to everybody message. This is exclusively for the church. If you have been raised with Christ, oh, here's an action item. Here's something I can do. Seek the things that are... Above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Giving us a reminder of Jesus' power, His authority. He says, if you're in Christ, why don't, you, why don't you set your mind in that direction? Why don't you focus on the things that are above, rather than the things that are below? He says, don't focus on the things that are on earth. Which gets us into another mystical sounding heebie-jeebie topic of theology that I want to get into briefly. And that's the fact that this seen reality around us is not the only reality. For example, you can read it later. Well, I'll read a portion of it. In 2 Kings 6, all the way back in the Old Testament, Elisha is being surrounded by an army of the king of Syria who's out to get him. And in chapter 6, or yeah, chapter 6, verse 15, I'll, I'll read this for you. When Elisha's servant rose early in the morning, he went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. All right, so this Syrian king has got his army. They have found out where Elisha is. They've surrounded the city. Elisha's servant looks out, sees all of this, and is absolutely petrified because there's no way in the world they're going to escape this time. There's no way in the world they can get around this, get through this, get beyond it. They're going to die. And so the servant says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? In verse 16, Elisha says, Well, don't don't be afraid, because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And at this point, if I was Elisha's servant, I would be thinking, You're smoking crack, because there's there's me, there's you, uh, one, two. I don't know how you're doing the math, Elisha, but we're surrounded. 
And then Elisha prays, and he says, Oh Lord, please open his eyes, that he may see. This isn't the first time I've hit this text with you, because of how important it is. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There is an unseen spiritual realm that exists right here. Now, I don't really know what that looks like. But I know that when Jesus arrived on earth, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm bringing this thing. And so Jesus' kingdom, as it invades this visible kingdom of Satan, whatever you want to call this, it's kind of overlaid onto it. So that now, physically, we exist where we are. Everybody here, right? You can feel me. But let me ask you this. Does your soul exist on that same plane? Like if I take a scalpel, and, and I'm, just, I'm being re- stupid here, if I cut you open, is your soul going to ooze out? If I cut you open, am I going to find that new creation? I, I used to make fun of the one, two, three, pray after me theology. I asked Jesus into my heart. Like, ah, I didn't realize Jesus was that tiny. You know, if you have open heart surgery, and you, you know, is he going to jump out and say, No. Because even though that is real, that is not on this plane of reality. And I think that Paul knows better than any of us that other plane. He, he said he was there. That he was taken to this. That he saw things. John had a vision of this on the Isle of Patmos. We see all throughout Scripture where the invisible realm of God and the physical realm of men that do this number. And so I believe that what Paul is telling us is that if you want to live the life of Christ, this life that is within you, then you need to set your mind in that direction. Set your mind on the things of God. Set your mind on Christ, not the things that are on this earth. I mean, we saw it all throughout the Gospels. Peter walking on water. What is that? What is that? Is that just a manipulation of matter, or is that the transcendence of God's kingdom as it's overlaid on top of our supposed kingdom? We saw it with the miracles of Christ. We saw it at the cross. Where in the space of six hours, the Son of God absorbed the wrath of His Father on behalf of our sins and satisfied God. How does God die? I mean, there are so many things that happen in Scripture that we can't explain, and it's because we try to process it with our physical being, with our physical mind. It's like the Trinity. Has anyone yet arrived at a suitable explanation that works that out? on it. I was hoping. I need to add that to my theology. It's, it's a tough one. And so I would submit to you this morning that transformation begins with setting our minds on heavenly things. Which is why we're here, right? It's why we have our gathering. It's why we have community groups. It's why we offer discipleship. It's so that in small groups or in big pockets we can come together as God's people and rest in what has been done for us. That supernatural reality by which God now sees the life of His Son in us. Set our minds on those things. There could be different means of doing this. It could be books. I love reading a guy by the name of Ted Decker. Anyone here familiar at all with Ted Decker? All right, you're missing out. This guy writes fiction, but it's all allegorical, and it all points to Christ, and it's beautiful. Because I'll be reading something, and then when the light bulb goes off, and I realize what it is that's going on, I'm getting goosebumps. I love reading his books. They're awesome. For some of us, it's music. There is something that happens when we listen to particular music And it just really sets our mind on Christ. 
And for some of us, it sounds like a certain type of music. For others, a different type of music. But it's something in the music, in the lyrics, that just, it, it takes you, not physically, but it just sets your mind on the things of God. For some of us, it's other things. It can be movies, conversations with believers. It can be recalling our own conversion. Some of us had the, had the blessing. If we're in Christ, we've all been blessed. Some of us have grown up unable to recall a time in our life where we really didn't trust Christ as Savior. I wish that were my testimony. It's not. I was saved as a senior in college. I could spend the rest of our time this morning laying that out, but I'll tell you this. It was a supernatural experience. It was an undeniable encounter with the God of the universe. Many of you have been there before. And we can think about that and we can realize, man, there's there's just something bigger than this out there. There's something bigger than this, and yet we spend our time thinking about the things that are on this earth, which aren't necessarily bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. But you know how it's weird when you're scrolling through the Yahoo headlines and you see over here, okay, 30,000 Christians kicked out of Mosul. And then the very next one is Rihanna wears a skimpy outfit to a party. And I'm like, wait a minute. How do you, how do you go from, from Christian persecution in the Middle East to, to pop entertainment? I mean, how in the world are those two things anywhere remotely on the same level of importance? But we do that ourselves. It, with not necessarily bad things, but how many of us would agree that sometimes we waste a lot of time investing energy into things that just really don't matter? I mean, these things aren't bad, necessarily. But at the same time, I think that our time could be oftentimes better invested as a product of thinking about the kingdom of God rather than just simply enjoying this temporal existence. And you're talking to a guy that loves to sit in the woods or fish. I mean, I'm not against these things, but they can be abused, right? Anything can become an idol. So Paul says, set your mind on Christ. Don't let your mind rest too long on the things of this earth because they're fleeting, they're perishing. Ultimately, the way that we can set our mind on the things of God is by reading what it is that God has told us. All right? Now, I'm not going to sit here and say, okay, your to-do this week is to read a chapter a day. What I'm saying, though, is that God has given us His Word so that through God's Spirit, as we read it, we encounter God which is a good thing, right? Verse 3, Paul says, You have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. The true us, the true us is hidden with Christ in God. How crazy is that? I mean, on that, that spiritual plane of existence where God sees us, He doesn't see this ruggedly handsome, uh, I've got a couple laughs, I'm just going to stop right there. He doesn't see this. Now, that doesn't mean that he's blind to it. It doesn't mean that if I walk over there and smack somebody, that that God doesn't know that it happens. But that's that's not the basis by which God relates to me now. He relates to me on on the basis of this treasure that is buried within jars of clay, on the basis of this new man that he's created within me. The real me, the true me, is hidden with Christ. So that now God doesn't judge me because of my actions. He doesn't judge me because of my inability in my own strength to do these things that God's Word says you should do. That's not how my relationship with God works. Then he says, and we need, to, we need to hurry, time is fleeting. In verse 4, Paul says, When Christ, who is your life? I wish we had time to unpack that. He doesn't say, When Christ, who gives you life, 
He doesn't say when Christ who influences your life. He says when Christ who is your life. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Uh, not me, but Christ in me. And, and there's this weird dynamic where the true me is only alive because of Christ. It is His life within me. Which means that in this flesh, as I am in, increasingly transformed, as I'm doing these things, it's not me doing them, but it's Christ in me doing them, even though I'm the one doing them. But I can't do them because that's not me, but it's Christ in me, so that it's Christ that's doing them as I'm doing... You, you understand how, how intertwined the two are? You can't really separate them, but at the same time, you know that it's the life of Christ that's coming out of you that could propel any possible obedience I told you this was a bit mystical, didn't I? It's a supernatural faith, and I'm okay with that. The truth is that apart from Christ in me, there is no Christian life. Apart from Christ in me, there is no desire. What does Paul tell the church in Philippi? He says, it is God who works in you to do two things. To will, to want, to have the desire for, and to what? To do. And so Paul says, God is the one at work in you, giving you that desire to want to even do anything. So, are you telling me that apart from God at work in me, I wouldn't want to do? Yeah. Paul's saying apart from Christ in you, apart from the work of God in you, you wouldn't even want to do these things in the first place. And even if you did want to do these things in the first place, apart from God in you, you could never do it. And so it's totally Christ in me, living through me, his life. It's not my life. I've died. My life is hidden with Christ. And so as I work, it's Christ at work in me. Mystical, odd, but I believe scriptural. I'm starting to confuse myself now, so I'm going to wind this thing up. Paul wants us to know that when the, when the kingdom of God is fully consummated, when Christ returns for His bride, we're going to be with Him. We're not going to be on the receiving end of the wrath of God's judgment. We're not going to be separated and seeing these things going on and wishing that we could be part of that, but we weren't good enough. Paul says, no. When Christ appears, who is your life, you're going to be with Him. You're going to be with Him. Set your mind on these things. It's not about, it's not about this. It's not about this. It's about that. So our journey marker then is this. Transformation, which I believe we all long for. Transformation comes through revelation. There are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. You can't jump to the action item and say, I'm going to be transformed by doing these things. You do those things by being transformed. And you become transformed as you set your mind on Christ. What does Paul say in Romans 12? He spends 11 chapters laying out the gospel, the global condemnation of all mankind, the free gift of salvation to those who believe. And he says, I urge you, I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, because of the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. It's the most rational thing. It's the only thing you can do. When you truly grasp what has been done for you, then all you want to do is worship. And as your mind is set on that, that is what propels the life of Christ out of us. Which means that if we get things right on the front end, there are no imperatives to really struggle with. 
I really think that the imperatives are there to show us that we're not set in our mind on the things that are above. Does that make sense to anyone? I know this is complex. This is not your typical, well, maybe not typical here. This is not, it's not easy theology. It's not shallow. But I think it's where life is found. Because transformation comes through revelation. Set your mind on, on the gospel, on Christ. And it's all throughout Scripture. We covered the gospel according to Moses. Walt and I were in Newport News over the weekend. We were listening to a, a professor at Southeastern Seminary that was just laying out the parallels in Matthew of Jesus being the greater Moses, of Jesus being the greater David. And he's going through this, and I'm just like, oh my goodness. I mean, it's just, we know from experience that all of God's Word points to Christ. All of it is Christocentric. And so we can jump anywhere in here, and if we're praying through it and the Spirit is illuminating God's Word, then we realize it's all about Christ, who has rescued us. Who has rescued us. So as, well, I was going to say as the band comes forward, as Craig and Jessica come up here, (laughs) the question then becomes this. Okay. Are there any action steps? You know, do I want to, do, do I listen to this and I just that's great and all, or, or is it beyond that? And again, I don't want to create a to-do list. But there are things that are going to be done, things that need to be done among us even this morning. And maybe for you, your action step is to just simply continue living with your mind set on the things that are above. Because some of you are there in a level that I've not yet gotten to. Because I still struggle with this. There's a part of me that says, it can't, it can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. I see what it is I'm supposed to do, and daggone it, I'm going to get it done. And I fail, and I fail, and I fail. And I see a lack of these failures in people who are striving to just simply live in the reality of who they are in Christ. And so for you, if, if that's you, and I pray that it's all of us, keep your mind set on the things that are above, not the things that are set on this earth. For some of us, we need to stop living in the shame of our failure and our guilt. Because I know a lot of us struggle with that. Because none of us are perfect yet. And for some of us, we realize that all too well. But we have this shame and this guilt. And we're convinced that our inability to live perfectly is creating this discord between us and God. We, we have this parent-child dynamic where we think that, well, if my kid can disappoint me, then I can disappoint God. Well, you're not God and he's a much better parent than any of us. Can God be displeased with actions? Yeah. Can God be displeased with His child? No. There's no condemnation. No judgment. No guilt. No shame. Christ took that upon Himself. And so the only thing flowing from us, to us from God, is love. I mean, we don't even have to ask Him to forgive something that we did today. It's been forgiven. It was forgiven. As we are saved, all of our sin is done. All of it is gone. And so for us, maybe the action step for us is to say, all right, God, help me not live in this guilt. Help me to not live in this shame. Help me to realize who I am in Christ, what has been done for me. Maybe you're sitting there and you realize, I'm just really not that motivated to set my mind on Christ. And I think that we're all there sometimes. When we focus too much on the things of this earth and they get to us, and we struggle with things, we realize, man, I just I don't have that want to right now 
to set my mind on Christ. And unfortunately, it's not a, it's not a switch that we can just flip on either. We can't just punch the magic button in our brain and all of a sudden we're just joyfully worshiping God. But maybe you're sitting here and that's where you want to be. Why don't you ask God? Say, God, I need your help setting my mind on your son because I can't do it right now. It's a God who is at work in you to will and to do his pleasure. Ask him for that want to. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're just like, man, I just, I'm just checking out of church and this is a little deep for me. I, I've heard of Jesus once or twice. You're talking new creation. You're talking different planes of reality. Bro, you lost me like 30 minutes ago. But maybe that's you and you just, you're still wrestling with whether or not you even buy into the whole Jesus thing. You're wrestling with whether or not you can rely on your own self-sufficiency as a means of rescue in the life to come when what you need to do is surrender and say, all right, Christ, I am relying exclusively on you as my hope of salvation. So maybe that's your step this morning. Just quit trusting yourself and trust Christ. I'm going to pray for us in a little bit. I'll be in the back. If you have any questions, I'd love to talk with you. I might have answers for you. I might not. But if you want to talk, I'd be happy to talk with you, to pray over you. I pray that for all of us, we leave here realizing transformation is not mechanically manufactured. We can't do it. No more than you can glue oranges to an apple tree and make it an orange tree. But the fruit of the Spirit is the life of Christ coming out of us as we turn our minds and our eyes on Him. I think that Helen Limmel said it best in 1922. Old, old hymn. She says, Through death and the life everlasting He passed, and we follow Him there. Over us sin no more has dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, He promised. Believe Him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, His perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I pray that we leave here this morning with our mindset on Christ and nothing else. So Father, as we wrap things up, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Son, for Your Spirit. Father, the only good that's in us is Christ in us. The only good we do is Christ through us. So Lord, I pray that that as we wrestle with these things, as we see in Scripture where there are clearly action items, Father, let us not run to them as a means of gain. Father, help us to not mechanically obey them as a means of being transformed. But Father, as Paul has urged us, please set our mind on your Son. Help us to live in the reality that in Christ we have everything, that we are perfected. Father, help us to realize that that you determine the acceleration of our transformation. That you are at work in us. That we're not willing it of ourselves. 
Father, as we received Christ through faith, so we also ought to live through faith, not through empty effort. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Father, the parts that really confuse us, myself included, Father, I'm, I'm grateful that, that you don't rely on our perfect understanding before you continue to work within us. So, Father, we give this time of response to you. Lord, for the one that's here that perhaps does not yet know your Son as Savior, I pray that you would open their eyes. As you open the eyes of Elisha's servant, and he saw the true spiritual reality around him. I pray you'd do the same for us this morning. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.